it. I was sitting in a petrol station last night and I was calming and oh mother of God, the window got tapped three <laughs> times in ten minutes. They are That mad. was the one lad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're, 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 they're mental about it, yeah. That's Don't go to rock. Subscribe to the OTBGAA podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Rugby on Off The Ball. With Vodafone, official sponsors of the Irish rugby team. We all belong to the team of us. Welcome along. Slightly shorter Wednesday night rugby than usual this evening. Very happy to say Chris Jones, BBC's rugby union correspondent, is with us. Good evening, Chris. Yeah, good to be on. How's it going? Very, very well. We have lots of Ireland talk, as you might imagine, on the show over the last uh, couple of days. And by extension, we have covered Australia and South Africa in great detail. France continue to look excellent. The fortunes of England, Wales and the Finn Russell inspired Scotland. uh, All very interesting, though, and we haven't talked too much about them. So England play South Africa on Saturday. That's their uh, finale to the November series. Thus far, they've lost to Argentina. We spoke to you after that game. You said, well, if they lose to Japan, Eddie Jones's position untenable. They promptly put 52 points on Japan. And then 25-25, a draw with New Zealand. A suitably confusing picture. 14-0 down after 10 minutes. They're 17-3 down at half time. They're 25-6 down going into the final 10 minutes and then suddenly they catch fire. Will Stewart scores two tries. There's a Freddie Stewart try. They get back to 25 points apiece against 14 Man New Zealand and then at the restart they kick the ball out of play in the 81st minute and Twickenham boos and Eddie Jones says it's a great day and nobody knows quite what to think so you can tell us what to think. Well, but Joe, you know what? I don't know what to think about England and I haven't known what to think about England for the last 30 test matches. I think it's been 30 since the World Cup uh, in 2019. Um, and every year, or it seems like every few months, we're asking the same question. Will the real England please stand up? What is this team? What is their identity? How good are they? And just when you think, oh, this team are, are struggling, they're going nowhere, they pull something out the bag. And just when you think, oh, they're onto something, they can't string two performances in a row together. So just looking at their 2022 you know, two wins out of five in the Six Nations, then go to Australia, lose in Perth, and you think, this team are in trouble. Rally really well to win a series in Australia, and you think, right, time to, to bounce into the autumn and really show they're going to be World Cup contenders come 2023, Six Nations contenders as well come the spring. Lose to Argentina. Just when you think, oh, a Japan, yeah, they're, they're, they're there for the taking is Japan. They put 50 on them. And then for the first 50, 60 of that New Zealand game, the All Blacks were in complete control, and you're thinking... Right, is, is this the lowest England have been under Eddie Jones? Is this, the, is this the most resounding a defeat they've ever had? And they rally so sensationally to be at the point where many people felt they could have gone for the win. I kind of know why they did it. They cashed in their chips from 25-6. They got to 25-all. But yeah, we're going into Saturday asking the same old question. Will this real England team please stand up? At 25-6 down, if that had been in the 80th minute, where would that have left Jones? That is a really good question. Um, It wouldn't have led to anything drastic, but it certainly would have piled the pressure on ahead of this weekend. Because if you then looked at 2022 in totality and gone, right, two out of five in the Six Nations, not good enough. Yeah, good series win in Australia. But then to lose to Argentina, New Zealand and South Africa at Twickenham with, what, four wins out of 11 in the uh, in the whole of the calendar year, that would have put his position under extreme scrutiny. But so well did they play in that final 10, so well did they rally, that they go into this Africa game knowing that a win 
really does salvage their autumn. And their autumn can then be seen as, oh, a bit of a slow start against Argentina. Very good against Japan. Could have beaten New Zealand. Came from behind magnificently. Beat South Africa. The Six Nations is long forgotten. Roll on 2023. So it feels like with England, we're constantly at a fork in the road. Are they going to go one way and suddenly explode into the team that Eddie Jones is promising? Or are they going to go the other way and just keep on limping up and down and fluctuating in form until they get to that World Cup and they um, and they end up going out in the quarters or the semi-final and you scratch your head about what the last four years were all about. So yeah, it feels again like we just don't know which way this England team is going and we hope to get some more answers after Saturday. When we last spoke to you, which was after the defeat to Argentina and before the win against Japan and this New Zealand game, we highlighted the real theme of Eddie Jones's uh, various dispatches across the year, which really is, trust me, it's going to be fine next year. The more time I have with the team, the more I'll be able to bring these uh, players playing at a whole array of different clubs together into something very special. I did it for you four years ago. I'm going to do it for you again. So that generally has been what Jones is saying. What would you say was the, di- I mean, who knows, but what, what was the difference in that first 65, 70 minutes where I think it was around the hour mark where even on the Amazon commentary, the phrase England out of ideas was being used. What was the difference between that and I suppose that last 10 minutes where, you know, Smith makes that great sniping run to kickstart things? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know whether it was a sort of, similar theme to what we saw a tiny bit at the end of the Argentina game, which is for the first time all game, England launched a real meaningful attack with real intensity when the clock was in the red and the game was up and Henry Slade cut a good line. And England kind of clung on to that and went, oh, look, that's what we can do. If that ball had stuck, he could have gone through and you end up going, oh, well, it didn't stick. You lost the game. But there's something in this England team. There is something there And that's why I think England fans are falling into two really extreme camps at the moment. You've got one set of fans who are like, look, in Eddie Jones, we trust. He did it four years ago, as you say, Joe. And look who he's added over the course of the last few years. Ellis Genge come on as a loose head prop. We saw a couple of, you know, new guys around the weekend. David Rippon did well off the bench. Freddie Stewart's a a world-class fullback already. Then there's Marcus Smith as well. And Jones fans would go, look, he's just added a little bit of quality into an already really experienced, stable core. And he's just working out the style. He'll get there in 2023. And the the opposite side say, well, look, they've got absolutely beasted at the mall, scrummed off the park. Their breakdown, they're all over the place constantly. And 10 minutes can't cover up for 70 minutes where you're 25-6 down and being well beaten at home. And both sets of supporters will have so much ammunition from Saturday to justify their <laughs> argument. That's why I think this England team is so polarizing at the moment. And you could you could you could say that's similar to New Zealand at the moment, maybe a, a little bit of Wales. There are a fair few teams who have been so inconsistent this year because everyone's beating everyone. Yeah, that it's only really France and Ireland whose fans you can go squarely are like, yeah, we're happy with where we are. A lot of other supporters, whether it's Australia, Scotland, Wales, New Zealand, England, they could all be going, oh, I don't know if this is working. I don't know if we're we're in the place we should be. But certainly I think England are the most extreme example. I put Australia in that category too. But I think England are the most extreme example of a, of a team whose fans just don't really know where the team is. And they're both coming at it from very, very different points of view. Yes. Uh, Marcus Smith, I think um, everybody's interested in. He he pitched up Chris at international level with uh, the most glittering highlights reel on YouTube that you could uh, care to see. So how has he been performing in that number 10 jersey? 
it's it, Marcus Smith is probably the kind of um, you know he he's almost synonymous with this confusion around the England team because he's had some lovely bits, hasn't he, in his uh, more 18 months of Test Rugby. Um, Owen Farrell was injured in that South Africa game last year and Smith ran the show, kicked the winning goal and looked to the man of Bourne. And then the Six Nations, I don't think he 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 particularly had it all his own way. He didn't have much alongside him. I mean, he's great players alongside him in midfield, but no one to carry the ball. Played in some really unbalanced midfields. Still scored a try at Murrayfield, still showed those glimpses. Same in Australia. I think he struggled a lot to really put his stamp on the game, then scores a breakaway try in Sydney to win the series. Similar this autumn. Struggled really to put his stamp on the game, and then he makes a match, potentially match-saving break against New Zealand that leads to the Barrett Yellow, the floodgates start to open. So you ask a good question. I think, look, is Marcus Smith a test quality fly? Of course. Does he have a huge amount of potential? Of course. How does the team fit around him and how does he fit into the team is the question a lot of England fans are asking. And I still think Smith himself, Owen Farrell, Eddie Jones are all trying to work out. Is Smith Farrell long term or is Jones just working on that as an option that he can go to in 2023? And to get the best out of Smith, does he need to be given more responsibility, more kick into the corner? Not the goal kicking because Owen Farrell is one of the best to ever do it. But could Marcus Smith just be stepping out of Owen Owen Farrell's shadow that little bit more? So how Farrell and Smith are working together has kind of been a running theme of 2022. Mm. And the fact that it's kind of there and kind of not, I think is indicative of the whole way England are playing at the moment. Just one last question on the England camp generally. So I think it's uh, fairly uh, common knowledge the extent to which Eddie Jones has a high turnover of backroom staff. He is a workaholic. There is... um, a great demand placed on anybody working as part of his coaching ticket. And then there were various um, pieces in newspapers uh, last year, very well sourced, which I would say painted a pretty old school, uh, school of uh, tough love kind of approach from Jones generally. So it seemed like an intense place to be. It's interesting, Andy Farrell at the moment, to draw a parallel, one of the things he's been credited with is, is creating an environment where players and coaching staff alike are really enjoying life and and you know Joe Schmidt's tenure mm. has been talked about as it was well that I mean it's, it was successful but it was very intense and very demanding mm. is this a happy England camp do you think or would you have a sneaking suspicion you'll be uh, hearing stories in 18 months time when players are a bit freer to talk oh th- th- there's no doubt there will be stories that come out after Eddie Jones has left and Look, stories came out after Stuart Lancaster left in 2015. And, you know, Stuart Lancaster, you guys know well, um, had very little turnover of staff and is a a guy who, you know, is unlikely to to, to do it. You know, he's going to treat people extremely well at at all times. Um, So stories come out after the regime's end. I think that's inevitable. But, yeah, you can't have the high turnover of staff, uh, both coaching and back room, on the Eddie Jones watch without there being, you know, some things that will come out in the wash. Look, this is Eddie Jones's. We know this is Eddie Jones's way. It's Eddie Jones's way or the highway. Funny enough, Joe, I think Eddie Jones has probably not been the intense figure in the last year that he may have been prior. Mm. He's brought in guys like Ellis Genge, Courtney Laws, Jack Noel, Makovinopola to to run the leadership and try to take a bit of leadership away from Owen Farrell. Certainly he did that in the summer. Will we then see as we zone in on the World Cup, going back to kind of Farrell's influence, will he be the captain of the World Cup? And so all the talk in the summer was like, 
oh, this England team is a nice place. Everyone is really friendly. Ellis Genge is bringing people together. So is Jack Noel. Mm. Courtney Laws is so chilled. Very different type of captain to Owen Farrell. Now we've got Farrell captain again. Will he be captain this time next year? Will Eddie Jones start to go, right, I've done it before at World Cups. We're going to do my way or the highway and maybe not have the more conciliatory approach that that, there has been suggestions he's adopted over the last year. But look, make you know Eddie there's no smoke without fire Eddie Jones operates a certain way it's a cutthroat environment England players will never ruffle the feathers and will never rock the boat while they're in the camp there's England caps and enormous match fees to play for mm. and a world cup to win so look that stuff will come out after 2023 if England don't win the world cup that was probably inevitable with whoever's in charge whichever coach but yeah maybe more so with Eddie Jones than another head coach for obvious reasons because we know he he operates in in a way that is um you know is, is particularly strong particularly forceful and he, he makes sure that um he's the dominant voice in camp and that that's always been the way chris wales 12 georgia 13 result of the weekend <sighs> that means wayne pivak is three wins from 11 this year you now don't have to go very far in the welsh media for calls on pivak to go and we need to nip this in the bud Mm. It, it's it's funny isn't it you, you could have everyone goes oh rugby can't adopt this football hiring and firing culture and and you know i don't think that football hiring and firing culture is healthy but at some point in the last world cup cycle the following head coaches have all been under real pressure ian foster gregor townsend dave rennie probably probably jack nina but up to a point eddie jones wayne pivak I think I think about six, six of the major nations, their coaches all been under the pump at some point in the last year or two because of their inconsistency. And none of them have got fired. So there's no danger of, at the moment, international rugby adopting this hiring and firing culture. And if Wayne Pivak can survive this, then, yeah, I think I think a lot of coaches can survive anything. Mm. He's lost a home to Italy. He's lost a home to Georgia. Might well beat Australia on Saturday. And they'll probably get a response. The, the Wallabies are injury ravaged, and we know how the Welsh perform with their backs to the wall. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm I'm surprised there perhaps hasn't been uh, even more noise over Pivac's job. That's not me calling for him to go. It's just as the reality that you know they don't seem to be progressing particularly. And the Welsh Rugby Union could have rung up Scott Robertson on Saturday night and said, "Be in Cardiff on Monday." Here's the check. Here's what you need. Take Give us a year to go to the World Cup. Maybe they did that behind the scenes. I don't know. I never buy this argument, Joe. Oh, we, we can't dispense with this head coach. They've got to finish their contract. They've got to get to the World Cup because two would replace them. There are coaches, club coaches, international coaches, assistant coaches. There are coaches out there who would give their right arm to coach Wales for a year out of the World Cup. And that applies to other nations as well. So if the Welsh Rugby Union have a plan and Wayne Pivak is part of it, great. But just sitting on their hands and hoping it'll be all right on the in the, on the night in France 2023, I don't think is particularly the the right way to going about it. Even if the hiring and firing culture from football is not the right way either. So, yeah, we'll see how they go on Saturday. But all this we've spoken before on the show, and we all this focus on the Rugby World Cup, everything's about the Rugby World Cup has just meant I think that a lot of coaches have stayed in jobs longer than they might have been yeah. if there wasn't this every four-year obsession with this World Cup that international rugby seems to have at the moment. And I think a lot of that is perpetuated by coaches who know it buys them time. Yeah. In some ways, I would have thought the Razzie Erasmus success with South Africa, the last World Cup might have proved to be 
you know, the poster child for uh, slightly more trigger happy unions, but it doesn't seem to have happened for whatever reason. What's the biggest issue for this Welsh team at the moment? Uh, I, in terms of on a micro level, what, what they are, their identity, when Dan Bigger plays, you know what they're about. When Dan Bigger doesn't play, you don't. You know, their best performances in the last 18 months have been with Bigger at 10, Scotland, Six Nations, France, Six Nations, away in South Africa. Um, but, but it's bigger issues, isn't it, Joe? It's much bigger issues in the Welsh game. What about the pathways? What about the young players? That golden generation has done Wales proud, yeah. but a lot of them are still playing, you know, well into their 30s. They need to have guys taking their shirts off them by now. And it's not just about Pivac. It's not just about his coaching team. It's about bigger issues. It's about a Welsh rugby union, a Welsh professional game, a Welsh rugby union that went so many years under Gatlin thinking, oh, the regions, doesn't matter what they do, we'll make this the fifth region in the Vale of Glamorgan and we can rid them of all their bad tendencies from their... That's not a way of sustainable success. As Sam Warburton said in the paper today, it should be about getting a region to win the Heineken Cup and Wales to win the World Cup in collaboration. Mm. It's an extremely uncollaborative rugby nation at the moment. Football's getting bigger. The atmosphere is not like it used to be at the Principality. The atmosphere in town isn't what it used to be. Yeah, I think there are serious decisions that need to be made about Welsh rugby as a whole. Otherwise, yeah, games like Saturday could just be the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, like I said, three wins from 11 this year. It's funny you say that about the atmosphere. I hadn't really been as au fait with that, generally watching the games from afar, but uh, it was even striking for... It must have been the French game in the Six Nations. They are, they sometimes play on a Friday, don't they? And there mm. were so many empty seats in Cardiff and... The point was made, not unfairly, I suppose, that if, you know, if you're working in the valleys, it's, a, you know, you don't have time to maybe necessarily get all the way up for the game, fill those seats. But at the same time, it did strike me, well, if things were going very well and there was a good vibe, those seats would be full. And, you know, not a full house of Cardiff for Six Nations game against France jumped off the page. Yeah, has to, has to. And that, that that's uh, quite a few months ago. So yeah. the warning signs have been there. Um, it is not a rich nation. You know, and if you're if you're looking at Twickenham prices and thinking, oh well, let's just let's look at that as a guide of how much to charge people to come to test rugby. That, that's a that's a ludicrous place to be because you know you need to be you need to be pricing accordingly. I, for so many years, the Welsh Rugby Union with Gatland at the helm, they were able to do this top-down approach. The Principality Stadium atmosphere, a world-class generation of players, a world-class coach that can then cover up all of the other stuff going on at, at grassroots and below. You know, there's, there's, there's money that goes to the community game. I don't really understand why it goes to the community game in Wales. You know, I'm part of a community club in England. You've got to raise, you raise your own revenues. You don't rely on on the union for handouts. You know, you pay to play when you're a player at, at, at grassroots level. It's a hobby. You pay your subs and you play. It seems to be there's a culture that the, the, the Welsh grassroots clubs get money from the union. But it, there needs a complete recalibration of 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 where the money is going in the professional game, how the regions can support the Welsh side, how they work in collaboration. And if it wasn't for the English clubs producing some players at the moment, you know, some of the best young talent is coming out of the English clubs, which they'll try and get to the regions, but then the Welsh players will go, well, do we stay with England? Where actually we've got a, a better club environment. So yeah, lots to get out with Wales. Okay. They'll, they'll probably put out the bag on Saturday. They'll probably pull out a couple of great results in the Six Nations. It's what they do. Mm. But is it longer term sustainable? That's a much bigger question. Okay. Well, we'll see how they go at the weekend for starters. Uh, Scotland then, super interesting dynamic here. So um, Mm. one point defeat to Australia to kick off the series. They beat Fiji. They were leading for a lengthy period against New Zealand after a terrible start and they were beaten 31 points to 23. 
and uh, Finn Russell was to the fore and then 52 points to 29 winners against Argentina where again Finn Russell was to the fore he was involved in all eight tries at Murrayfield and it's not everyone who puts 52 points on Argentina so the crucial context of course is that Russell and Gregor Townsend have had numerous run-ins at this stage Russell was omitted from the summer tour he was omitted from this November series Blair Kinghorn Adam Hastings Ross Thompson were in and then injury struck Finn Russell brought back into the fold and has impressed against New Zealand and was again really to the fore at Murrayfield against Argentina Russell said it's great fun it's great to be back I love playing at Murrayfield and Gregor Townsend said we're glad to have Finn in this form for the last two weeks it's great he's playing some of his best rugby he's now the man in possession of the jersey it'll take something special from Blair and Adam to change that his passing skills are up there with the best in the world I'm trying to work out is Gregor Townsend dying inside when he's saying this (laughs) it's such a good question because no doubt Gregor Townsend wanted to move move beyond Finn Russell. It appeared as if his patience had ran out with Russell, whether it was his performances in the Six Nations, whether it was his conduct, you know, he does work rate against France, his yellow card against Wales, going out on the town after the Italy game, being dropped for the Ireland game, didn't take him on tour. Adam Hastings, Blair King, Horn, Ross Thompson, they're my three tens. Let's move on. Let's try and, you know, cut not cut ties with Russell indefinitely, but let's try and build a team that is not reliant around Finn Russell, who Gregor Towns had obviously run out of patience with. And then the one person who didn't want to get injured is Adam Hastings. Because if Ross Thompson gets injured, he was always third. Blair Kinghorn, fine. Adam Hastings plays. Adam Hastings getting injured means Russell then goes from number four to number one, <laughs> has a couple of blinders, and now... They're back to where they were, I don't know, middle of 2021 when Townsend was talking Finn up for the Lions and they seem to be really, really close-knit. That relationship is just mad. It's impossible to keep up with. I think Scotland fans are just thinking, well, awesome to have Russell back in the fold. Awesome to have him back playing well. Uh, Maybe Townsend will have to accept, oh, well, you know, Finn is Finn and I've just got to work with him. But the way that relationship has ebbed and flowed over the last couple of years, it's pretty hard to keep up with, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it won't be the last time we talk about it. Listen, great to have you in the show as always. We appreciate it massively. Thanks so much, Chris. Always a pleasure. Thanks a lot, Joe. Cheers. Cheers. Chris Jones with us. He's the BBC Rugby Union uh, correspondent with us live on the line there. Our rugby coverage and off the ball is with thanks to Vodafone, main sponsor of the Irish rugby team. We all belong to the team of us. Like I said, we had talked about Ireland uh, plenty across the schedule over the last few days, so we thought it would be worth checking in on England, Wales and Scotland, all having pretty interesting Novembers as well. 